So last week we saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, staging what is perhaps the weirdest coronation ceremony imaginable. And he heads almost directly to uh, the temple, the center of the Jewish faith, which was Jesus's faith, by the way. And he starts throwing over tables and driving out people that are making money off the sacrificial system. And uh, Luke and Matthew add that he begins to threaten people with a whip. He's aggressive. He's offensive. He's pushy. This is not the lifetime movie, gentle, meek, and mild Jesus that uh, we've been told about. Now, why does he do this? Why does he come into the temple in this way? Well, he says that my house, that is the temple, quoting Isaiah, will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. This is from Isaiah 56, where the temple was designed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was supposed to be, in other words, a gift of God to all humanity. It's not merely the center of Jewish faith, but the imagery in the Old Testament, particularly in Micah and Isaiah, is of the nation streaming into the temple, into Jerusalem to come and and meet with the God of Israel. It was to be a house of prayer, not only for Israel, but for everyone. In other words, it's, it's not a clubhouse for a tribe, but it's a missional outpost for people of purpose. And it's a place where the distance between heaven and earth collapses. It's a thin place. It's where God himself dwelled. A God who is fundamentally oriented, by the way, toward the world in relationship. The fact that a temple exists at all is a fact of hope, that God cares for his world and he comes to meet with us in various forms. God sees his world that is dispossessed by its own sin and is drawn to gather them up in cosmic reconciliation. And the temple is the place where the faithful made regular pilgrimage to be reminded of these things, but only because God first comes in pilgrimage to us. Israel made pilgrimage to the temple because God had made pilgrimage to them in the form of the temple and the sacrificial system. And we make pilgrimage to God because Jesus makes pilgrimage to us in his body, the temple. Now, God in this temple, he comes through the Jewish people in this specific place in the world to get to everyone. And this intent is built into the very design of the temple itself, because there was this place that was specifically set aside to be welcoming to Gentiles and to outsiders, that they too would come and pray and be welcomed into relationship with God. Well, guess where Jesus goes? Guess where these money changers have set up shop? Likely in this court. Jesus is upset, you see, about more than just someone conducting commerce 
at the temple. This was actually necessary for those making pilgrimage to offer sacrifices, we will see. But Jesus is angry at the where and the how. Because it appears that these money changers and likely other commercial interests have actually co-opted the court of the Gentiles where these non-Jews would be allowed, they were invited to come and to pray. But this function, this place in the temple had apparently over time become somewhat superfluous. And this was a practice that is taking up this court with these tables of monetary exchange was a practice basically of religious exclusivism in the name of commerce. It violated, you see, the very meaning of the temple, that God is a God for all people, that all are welcome. But think with me here for just a moment. These money changers are on the front lines of Jesus's anger, but They didn't just set up on their own authority. Someone allowed them to do this. Someone oversaw this. Someone witnessed it happening and didn't stop it. This is happening under the noses of the religious priest who knew Isaiah, who knew the purpose of this part of the temple. Not only did they not do anything, did they not clear out the court themselves, but they got a cut. And this religious exclusivism gives birth to an economy of extraction. Jesus sees these pilgrims, largely poor, subsistence farmers, making their way to Jerusalem to present sacrifices to God. And when they got there, they get fleeced by these money changers who charged exorbitant rates when people had to exchange currency or purchase materials for their sacrifices. Once you made the days-long or even weeks-long journey to Jerusalem, you likely had very few choices for these kind of things. It's like that one gas station that's near the the rental car return at the airport. There's always only one, and you got to return the rental car full, and you don't have time to drive around and to bargain shop. This one gas station, therefore, can charge crazy amounts per gallon, and you'll pay it because you have a flight to catch and Hertz is going to charge you like $9.99 a gallon if you bring back the car uh, less than full. Well, this is what is happening. These pilgrims are streaming in and they have this one opportunity to exchange money to buy the sacrificial implements that they need and they're being fleeced. The temple, a sign of God's free, unmerited good- goodness, has become now a house that is full of religious grifters. Probably back until the, since the days of Solomon, religion had been used to separate people from their cash. What is happening is this system is transferring money from the day laborers out in the fields to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. It had very literally become a den of thieves. And this is from Jeremiah 7, the chapter before our Old Testament reading this morning, which mentioned the connection of Israel and the figs. Jeremiah 7 says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, 
and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What a foreboding, what an ominous text that God is watching those who exploit the poor, those who misuse his name, those who misuse the temple. If you want to have your tables turned over by Jesus, this is the way to do it. Exploit the poor through religion. Hide from God in religion, where faith isn't a means to know God and to serve his world, but it's a safe place to hide all our greed and nationalism and prejudice and call it godly. The temple, along with Jerusalem, had become a distortion. It become a mockery of its original purpose. And this is what Jesus is dramatically pointing out in cursing the fig tree. Figs were commonly associated with Israel in the Old Testament, as it was in Jeremiah 8 that we read. They were, that is, figs were a source of life and vitality. They were a sign that the ground was fruitful. And in cursing this tree, Jesus is saying that Israel was, in a sense, meant to be God's perpetual tree of life, but it has become curved in on itself and dead to its own purposes. And in cursing the tree, Jesus is saying that something has to change, something new has to take place, that this old tree of life has become a tree of death, and something in its place must spring up and bring life, and that is him. How does he do this? He shows up on a donkey. He shows up with this band of misfits, putting his life on the line to save it. He comes for the outsider, for the excluded, for the unloved, because their place of welcome had been overrun by exploitation in the name of commerce. And he comes to overthrow this economic system that is built on the backs of the poor, where the poor fund the affluence of the religious elites. Now, it's likely, unfortunately, that the money changers started setting up their tables as as soon as Jesus left, or maybe as soon as they saw him crucified. But this is, this is theater. It's what you would call in religious language a sign or two signs, that is, the cursing of the fig tree and the driving out of the money changers. Jesus, like any good artist, a good musician, or film director, or writer, he is imagining for us a world beyond what we can presently see. And what he is saying is that to build something new, you have to remove what is old, what is presently there. If you want to put up a new building in a certain block, you have to raise the building or the construction that's there. You have to clear the ground. And that's what this is. But it's not just demolition for the sake of 
destroying what is old. It is clearing the ground for something new and something unexpected and something far more beautiful. Because what he is doing is he is displacing the temple with and by his own body. In chapter 14, which we will get to eventually, Jesus offers commentary on this episode. And he says, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. That is the physical temple. And in three days, we'll build another, one that is not made with human hands. And that is his body. That is his resurrection body. God's purposes for the world are being renewed in Jesus These purposes that were originally housed in Jerusalem, in the temple, are now being renewed in his resurrected body. And it's a temple that isn't set in a capital city where people come to from the hinterlands to bring offerings to it. But Jesus brings the temple to the very ones who are being exploited, who are being excluded. The poor, Gentiles, lepers, widows, orphans, and aliens. And he's saying in doing so that God doesn't wait passively for you in the capital city. He doesn't wait passively for you to make your way to this big edifice, but he takes up residence with you and in you. Jesus, yes, comes to the temple with a whip. That ominous passage from Jeremiah 7 that God has been watching. God has been watching his temple take take on this distorted form, this distorted shape. He's He's been watching it be overrun by religious zealots who don't care for God's purposes and don't care for the people that God's heart beats for. They care for themselves. They care for their own well-being. Jesus comes, therefore, to the temple with a whip. He comes angry. But it's not an abstract rage. It's anger, you see, that is mated with love. It is two emotions that in our way of thinking are on the spectrum that is on the either poles of the spectrum. But in God, these are the opposite sides of the same coin love and anger towards that which threatens his loved ones. Anger towards that which diminishes and undermines his love. He comes angry, but not in abstract rage. He brings anger mated to love. He comes into Jerusalem as a different kind of pilgrim because he comes not bringing, not offering sacrifice, except that he comes offering himself, that he is the sacrifice. He comes not with a royal entourage, not to sit on the throne of this gigantic, beautiful edifice, but he comes on a humble donkey. He comes weeping over the city that has walked away from him. He is angry, but he is angry in love. He comes weeping for Jerusalem. He comes expecting to die for his friends. And along the way, 
leading up to this entrance into Jerusalem and this cleansing of the temple, this cursing of the fig tree, he comes healing, healing the blind, the lame, children, lepers, women. Those are the people whose tears he carries into the temple. Who would imagine the God of the Old Testament weeping over his fallen city, weeping over his lost children who love religion more than him? God watching us is not as ominous as it might sound. Him watching us and weeping over our sin is an act that is ultimately sprung from love. It is sprung from his promises of kindness, sprung from his promises of patience. These all go together. The city that he loves, the place where God has come to bring healing to his dispossessed world has become a place that kills the prophets and exploits the faithful in the name of religion. Jesus comes liberating this temple imagery, reminding us that God throws open the doors of salvation to everyone, while at the same time warning the most devout insiders to never get too comfortable. The one who unites the extremes of human emotion, anger, and love, curses and tears into one personality of wholeness. In the end, he demands an extreme response from you and I. The religious establishment, they saw what Jesus' own followers often did not. They saw that he was coming with something new, and they knew that he had to, they had to crown him or kill him. They had to love him and serve him or dispose of him. And we see later this similar whip of cords taken up by someone else at the behest of religious zealots who couldn't tolerate someone like Jesus. They colluded with Pilate to have Jesus flogged with a whip of cords and ultimately murdered. It's so easy, isn't it, to look at the undeniable greed and the corruption that marked the religious establishment of the day and say they're the problem. That's the problem with the world, and in many ways it is. But I think we all know that we can't ultimately offload what's wrong with the world to others. How often we should be asking, do we make our, our way in the world with exclusion, with exploitation? How often do we long for a God who validates our strength and our standing and rewards our goodness rather than a God who dies in cultural shame? Friends, the real God, the living God, the creator God, He calls us to crucify all of our illusions, to gravitate toward those on the margins, to cherish meekness and to practice love, and to join him in a crusade to die for the healing of his world. As we come to our time of 
feeding upon his love in a tangible, physical way as we come to the table. Let's pray and let's then confess our faith that we hold so dear that is based upon this work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would anoint your church in town to be a beacon of hope and of life and of safety and of welcome and of love for your whole world, particularly those that we know uh, are neighbors who are suffering, suffering through uh, the destruction of the COVID-19 virus, the destruction of flames, the destruction of, of boredom, of loneliness, of disconnection from community. Father, I pray that we would be a place of hope, a place of restoration. I pray that, pray that your church as a whole, in and around Portland and in and around our, our country and our world, would see how much you love and how much you long to see the nation stream in to your temple. And so, Father, I pray that we would open up our arms, that we would welcome our neighbors into your midst, that we would serve them with the tenacity that you, Jesus, serve us with. And Father, we pray as we come to the end of our service that you would instill in us hope for a new week, that you would create in us a new heart, that you would renew your mercies so that we would, <clears throat> that we would live by mercy into the coming week. And we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.